Father, may our lives be all about you. I mean, this is why we're here. It's, it's certainly not about me, and it's not about us. We want the spotlight to be upon your son. Look, look to him, we say. And we worship you and we love you. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. As some of you may know or may recall, <laughs> um, I got involved with, with Campus Crusade for Christ as a student at Ohio University. And I remember my junior year, it would have been, I think, the spring of 91, we did various outreaches throughout the year, and we tried a different type of outreach where, and you could still do this, I don't know if they do it anymore today, but we sent out flyers all over this one particular uh, dorm, and then I sat on a student panel, and there was about five of us or so that were on this panel, and we just had a time that they had any questions about uh, Christianity that they they could ask us. And so, I don't know, there was 10 or 20 kids that, that showed up, or students that showed up, and they just started asking us questions. And so one of the questions I do remember them asking, because um, I remember the group being having a hard time answering it, was, um, why do you believe Jonah was in the belly of a whale? Now, how would you answer that question? Throw it out there, how would you guys answer that? <laughs> because the Bible, okay, all right, it just it, because it shares that story. I mean, how, that mean it's true or not? And so, yeah, those were the type of questions that we're still going to answer. And I remember, like, I immediately knew what the answer, what I thought was the correct answer. And there was one other person on the panel that I thought would would have the same answer as myself, and he was very reliable. His name was Michael Brown, and there's a other students were just struggling to answer that, that question. And so finally, I, I remember just looking, and Michael kind of looked around, and we, he was on one end, I was on the other, and we looked at each other, and we basically just said, well, that's just something that we take by faith. That it was here, it was in this book, and this, as reliable as this book is, you know, it's something that we simply take by faith, because we weren't, we weren't there, right? We weren't there. Dow, I would probably say this. I would counter that question with a question to them. I would say, why do I believe in that Noah's in the belly of a whale? Or not Noah, but Jonah was in the belly of a whale. I would say to them, how do you know that George Washington ever lived and existed? Now, what were they going to say? I would say, were you there? No, and I wasn't there when Jonah was in the belly of a whale. Okay. Are there any pictures of Jonah being in the belly of a whale? No. Are there any pictures of George Washington? The answer is no. There are paintings, but the painting is just a, someone's interpretation of how he looks like to the best of their painting ability. So we just never really know if George Washington exists. How do we know he existed? Well, there are writings that say that he existed, and how trustworthy are those writings? Correct. And there's eyewitness testimony that this happened. And that's kind of one of the, the ways that I would answer that question. Well, how do you answer the question, how do you, why do you believe in a, a worldwide flood? 
But we're going to go beyond the Bible for this one because there is an abundance of evidence and facts that that actually happened. Okay? But I want to begin with this right here. Well, we're going to go to the Bible this morning. Don't worry about that. But we want to talk about... Um, did I give you the... I sent the wrong one. That's not the right one. Did I put the wrong one in there for April 16th? Everyone turn around and make Frank feel really uncomfortable right now. Okay? Because the Lord knows he's not doing enough as, you know, with all the security cam work he's doing and everything else he's doing. Did I send you the wrong one the 16th of April? Because we're probably going to sing another song. Will I go get the right one then? <laughs> they put the wrong one in there, Frank, or did, did you happen to make a mistake? Because, Lord, if I were to talk to your wife, she says you're never wrong. Well, speaking of Frank's and his fault, Shannon, would you come up and we can talk about all the things that are wrong with Frank? <laughs> we only have two days. <laughs> Is there one in there for April 16th? Yeah, 2023? Let's see, this is the right one? There it is. Hey, let's give Frank a kind of an applause because he failed, but he made it right. Hey, Frank. Yay, Frank. It's all about Frank this morning, right? Okay. So I had that beautiful introduction that's now been gone from your minds. I want to talk to you about just a, a brief recap of kind of where we've been if you looked at Genesis. And I would say this... In Sunday school, I'll say it to you again. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, if you want to understand the book of Genesis, it's really broken down into two sections. The first 11 chapters are all about origins. Origins, the beginnings, the first family, the first society, okay? Then there's a do-over, okay? And then it starts and so on and so forth. So this is what I wanted to see. I've been this before, just to get a general outline of and feel for what Moses, who wrote, we believe, who wrote Genesis, is doing, so he could trace his line of thinking, is there's the creation narrative. And of course, how long did it take God to create everything? Six days, okay? And for our sake, what we're going to say is on the first day, obviously, he created light, separated light from darkness. And what did he do in the second day? Because since we were talking about the flood, and this relates to the flood, the earth was always covered, it was formless and void and covered in water. And so he did this. He cut that circle, and he went like this, and he expanded and created the water above, the heavens and the universe and everything, and then there was the earth. But it was still submerged completely in water. Okay? And so that's, and then he goes on and creates everything. And of course, the pinnacle of his creation is what? On the sixth day... He created man in his own image. We're different. Genesis 2 is simply uh, a, another creation narrative, but specifically focuses on what particular day? Day 6. And we find the details for the creation of woman. 
Okay? And so what, and the reason why we, he does that is because he's creating an already an authority submission uh, principle. Because he's ultimately authority, and he gives authority to who? Not to the animals, but to first to who? To Adam, because he was to tend the garden. He even named the animals. Okay, he eventually even named his wife Eve. Okay, honor woman. Then the woman is created in his equal in image and everything, except she has a different role. She is a helper to help him be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to establish dominion, and together they rule. And she was always his equal, but just had a different role. Because he, she, he can't conceive children. He can't bring forth children. That's the role of the woman, to help him do all of that. Okay? Now you need to understand that authority submission, that, that, that role hierarchy, if you want to call it that, chain of command, because what happens in Genesis 3? It's the fall of man, but what, how did it happen? Eve usurped Adam. There was a reversal of that hierarchy that God created. It was reversed. She took control. He, the passive male did what he did. Okay? And that was Satan's strategy, and we are where we are today. But even though Eve sinned first, it wasn't until Adam ate the fruit that they realized they were sin. And God went directly to Adam first, not to Eve, because he was a representative head that he had set up over the entire universe, basically, and the planet. And so sin has always entered through Adam, even though Eve sinned first. Okay? The curse given to uh, the serpent or was what? It was Satan in the form of probably of a, of a reptile or dragon or a snake. What was the curse? He's going to crawl on the ground, eat dust, and what else? Someone's going to come and destroy your offspring and destroy you. He's going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, he will crush your head. So the decisive blow is from the offspring of the woman will come a, a Messiah who will okay, restore everything. To the man, what was the curse? The ground was cursed, and then his labor was cursed. Remember that? But there was another curse that was given to the man, but it was given really to the woman, because it definitely affects the man. The woman was given two curses. What were they? Increased pain and childbearing. And what was her other curse? She's going to desire to rule her husband because of what she did in the garden and usurped his position She's going to be given over to that desire and struggle with that. And man is going to be forced to rule over her. And so that's why there's conflict in marriage and conflict in society. And boy, has man exercised ungodly dominion over women because by the time you get to Jesus, women are nothing more than cattle. They're, they're on the level of an animal, which was never God's intention. As I said before, women should never have to have to fight for equal pay or, or to vote or anything like that. That was never God's intention, Okay. And Christ sort of restored that in his teachings, okay? So they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. What happens in chapter 4? The very first child they have is who? Okay, and they have a sinful nature now. And Cain eventually kills his brother, Abel. And then we have from Cain, we get in chapter 4, the origin of two societies. From Cain, the origin of the secular society. And all the things that they were able to do. Remember the, the things that they developed in those 1,656 years or whatever, that first society? What did they develop? Arts, metallurgy, 
animal husbandry, all that, probably great advances in all of that. Poetry, music, uh, all of that was there. And of course, where was the earth at that point in time? It was rich with what? All sorts of minerals and, and gold. What was in the land of, of, of the Garden of Eden? I told you where it is, right? We talked about that. And even today, we can find that there's great deposits of gold and jewels. And so they were mining all of that stuff, and, and, and so they had that, that society. And then you have the, uh, through Shem, the sacred society was born. Then you have Genesis 5, which ended up being one of the more popular sermons, obviously. When I looked at and broke down, just it's nothing but a genealogy from Adam through Shem, and you get to see how Adam, I think he lived 930 years, I think, so he lived over half of that first society of 1,656 years. He got to see an awful lot of corruption. Okay? And he overlapped even almost Noah. Okay, it was very close. Remember that? And so you see all of that, and, and there's a reason for that, because we know how reliable these documents are that we have. Then, of course, you have Genesis chapter 6, and, of course, what happens there. It's been great corruptions in the land, but something seals the deal. Something says, this is it, you cross the line, I've got to destroy you. And what was that? There were false prophets at the time that we believed that were teaching that you could have an eternal life if you willingly allowed an evil spirit to come within you to create a, 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 a demonic family. The, the, the evil spirits left the boundaries that God set for them, went and cohabitated with women, it says, to produce this ungodly offspring. We think it was because they were trying to get eternal life, because they wanted to escape the death sentence, because death was still there. Okay? God says, that's it. I've had enough. I'm giving you 120 years, and what does he do? He raises up Noah. And in the end, there was only how many righteous people? Out of all the probably 5 to 10 billion people that were alive, eight righteous people. And Noah preaches for 120 years, and he builds an ark. And of course, then you have Genesis chapter 7 in the flood. This is why day 2 is important for you understanding creation. God takes the rain that's above, remember that? He brings it down on the earth, and he unleashes through volcanic eruptions and earthquakes the great vaults of water below. And so you have water coming up, and you have water coming down, and they are literally drowns everything and blots out everything except eight human beings and the animals that were in that ark. And it has a judgment for sin. Okay? And in chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, it's them getting off of that. And they walk into a world of death, by the way. There would have been bones and, and stuff everywhere. But that's for next week. Follow that. I'm going to revisit something that has drastically impacted you. And, and may, you may know this. You may not know this. It's this idea of this right here. It's, it's when things work and technology works, and it's great, and it doesn't work now. And so this clicker is not working, gentlemen. Someone needs to fast forward this. Next slide. There it is. There we go, I got it now. Thank you. It went wrong because of Frank. Let's just say that, all right? It went wrong because of Frank. 
Say Frank. <laughs> yes. So, right. All in favor of Frank buying everyone lunch here because of his mistakes, raise your hand. Frank is. All right. Frank's the man. All right. I couldn't. You know, they do so much. You know, they freed me up to do what I need to do. Anyways, we're going to talk about catastrophism versus uniformitarianism. Okay. Some definitions. What is catastrophism? Anything? Anyone want to take a guess? I like big words that make me look important, but it's just a simple definition, by the way. It's simply, it's this, it's that there's dramatic geological changes um, occur in sudden, violent, unusual events, okay? A catastrophic event or a cataclysmic event. In geology, it's called catastrophism, okay? So obviously, what would the flood be? A catastrophic event, okay? And so a catastrophist is going to observe sedimentary rock formations. Now, what is sedimentary rock? There's a rock. That's what I'm talking about. For those of you who like to bake cakes, layered cakes, think of that. You have one layer, then another layer, then another layer, then another layer. Okay? So if you have like a yellow cake with a layer of chocolate, then another layer of yellow cake, and then some caramel, and then another layer, and then some chocolate frosting, and you gave that to the pastor, you would go to heaven. Okay, that's, that's that simple. Anything with white frosting, you're destined to destruction, because I don't like that. All right? But that's layers. That's sedimentary rock, okay? And we know that it's formed not like this. It's formed by waves, and they're depositing more and more and more on top. So that's how sediment or strata or sedimentary rock is created. So you have, so if I, if I believe in uh, catastrophism, I'm going to see sedimentary rock formations or large canyons that I'm going to interpret them as a result of, for example, massive flooding. Now, if I do that, that's going to yield a much younger time frame for the development of, say, Earth's geological processes, Okay. All right, which basically means I, in a sense, I'm ultimately going to agree with a young Earth that it's only like 6,000 years old, roughly, the planet. Now, this is, needs to be explained to you because you've not been told this. What you've been told is uniformitarianism, okay? And a little history on this. It was first proposed around the beginning of the 19th century by two British geologists, James Hutton, and his best-known disciple, Charles Lyell. Now, Lyell's work, called Principles of Ge Geology, it just was an explicit rejection of creation and flood-based explanations for geological formations. So obviously, he was an atheist. All right, He rejected all of that. In fact, Lyell insisted that all the features of Earth's geology must be explained by natural rather than supernatural processes because God is no longer in the equation. He regarded all biblical or supernatural explanations as inherently unscientific and therefore false. And so he began with the presupposition that Scripture itself is untrue. And his work essentially enshrined in other words, it made without question atheistic naturalism as the basis for scientific research and pushed out any explanation of geology from catastrophism. 
That's why I said there are really no natural laws. There are God's laws that God set up, and they function the way that God designed them to function, okay? But we don't hear that. We only hear that there are natural laws or a mother earth, anything but God, okay? And so based upon that, there's no, you don't even consider catastrophism. Everything is uniformitarianism. And so as you would expect, Lyle's uniformitarian theory, it was enormously influential on other scientists of his age. Guess who he influenced greatly? Charles Darwin took a copy of Lyle's work, Principles of Geology, with him when he sailed on the HMS Beagle in 1831. And the theory of evolution itself was the predictable result of Lyle's uniformitarian hypothesis. And from the first publication of Lyle's work until today, the hypothesis that the earth is ages old, and this is what you hear, this is what we were all raised to hear, that the earth is ages old. And by ages, I mean they are now extending it into billions of years. They've gone beyond millions, and now it's billions of years old. And that has dominated secular science. Now, get your Bibles out. Turn to 1 Peter 3. It's up there. Because the Apostle Peter prophesied that men will deny the second coming of Christ just as they denied a catastrophic worldwide flood. Near the end of the Bible, go to the very, very end, you'll find 1 Peter chapter 3, okay? Second Peter 3. I put first Peter in there. Yeah, I was wrong. It's second Peter 3. Frank is influencing me today. So all right. Now look at what he says this. Now watch this. What, what does he say here? No. I mean you really gotta know this first of all. So this is a know this first of all. What does that mean? It's supreme importance. Know this first of all. What do I need to know? That in the last days, okay, when did the last days begin? Pentecost. I don't let my mother-in-law know any of these answers because I so much want to make fun of her. So you guys over here have to start yelling louder. Okay? Then the last days I will pour out my spirit. Right? So we're in the last days. All right? So now... In the last day, so over 2,000 years ago, so we were way in the last days, what's going to happen? Mockers will come with their mocking. Yeah, there are people mocking, and what are they mocking? Well, they're motivated because they're, they're, they're led by, because they're following their own lusts. Now, what does the word lust mean? It really simply means desire, and the context here will tell us what the desire is. And you're going to see it's their desire to live a life of no accountability, no judgment, no responsibility. I can live my life as I want with no consequences. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so that's what's going to happen. They're following these lusts and saying what? Where is the promise of his coming? So now they're saying what's not going to happen? A second coming of Jesus Christ, a second coming. They say, well, why? What's the reason? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
In other words, from creation, what's happening? Everything is slowly happening. There are no catastrophic events. It just has always continued that way, and it's always going to continue that way. It's always been that way, it will always be that way. But he says what? And that is uniformitarianism. Okay? Slow, gradual changes over time. And if I don't think it's going to work, what do I do as a uniformitarianism? I simply add more time to it. Okay? This is why the earth gets older and older year by year to explain what's going on. Watch this. For when they maintain this, Peter says, a uniformitarian position, it escapes their notice. They forgot, and I'll explain this in a little bit, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. What's that referring to? Creation. And the earth was formed out of water, creation, and by water, creation, through which the world at that time was destroyed. That's a flood. So we got creation and the flood. Two catastrophic events. They were cataclysmic events. Did they forget that? That's what he says. Again, these mockers are arguing from uniformitarianism in Peter's time. The belief that everything just keeps going along at the same pace. There are no cataclysmic, catastrophic invasions by God, and there certainly is no judgment. And that's what verse 4 talks about. Where is the promise of his coming? In other words, what verse 4 is saying is, there will never be some great cataclysmic judgment event at the end of history, because that's what history proves. Everything just goes along the same all the time. There are no cataclysms or massive earth-shaking events or supernatural judgments. But I want you to look at verse 5. He says, when they maintain this position of uniformitarianism, it escapes their notice. And again, just as a reminder to everybody, the people who translated escapes their notice were very kind because it actually says this in the Greek. They shut their eyes to the facts. So Peter's already implying that there are Evidence. There is facts for what? Creation and a flood, a worldwide flood. You see that? In so other words, this is deliberate ignorance by these people. Well, what facts are they shutting their eyes to? Well, the factual evidence is overwhelming for two historical cataclysmic events, creation and the flood. As science studies and we gain more knowledge, they have moved away from, it just hasn't passed down, a theory of evolution. It used to be taught. It still is taught. It's embedded in society. But the top minds say that it simply isn't possible. Because the evidence points to, they won't say God, what's the word they use today? Intelligent designer, because there's just too much design within this. Okay? And it doesn't lead to an older earth, but a younger earth. But what evidence is there for a flood? Well, we're going to look at that this morning, some of it. But they just willfully deny all the facts, because they're led by what? Their lusts. It's a love for sin. They, don't, they turn a blind eye to facts and embrace a lie. The lie is uniformitarianism. They want to live a life without any judgment, any accountability. Now, I wrote this. Since we are talking about the worldwide flood, I think an appropriate question is this. Well, which is true? Is it uniformitarianism, or is it catastrophism? Well, let's look at 
the evidence and the facts. We're not going to turn our, a blind eye to the facts. Let's look at the facts. Okay, so here we go. We're going to look at some fossil records. All right? Now let me just set this up for you here. The fossil records, and I'm talking not just dinosaur bones, but all sorts of bones of animals that we have, they pose a real problem for the uniformitarian position. Because natural sedimentation, I talked to you about that, over several ages, even millions of years, cannot explain how so many fossils came to be concentrated in one place. And so I have to educate you on some of this stuff. Every inhabited continent contains large fossil beds. Did you know that? When I say large fossil beds, tens of thousands of fossils. Okay? Some say even millions of fossilized species are found together in large concentrations. It's as if all these creatures were destroyed and buried together by massive flooding. Okay? Now here's one proof that we all know about these guys right here. This is not an actual mammoth, but you can go to the Museum of Natural History, which should be called Museum of God's History. Okay? And you have this. What's that? It's a mammoth. Okay? Here's what a mammoth looks like, an actual mammoth looked like that they recovered. A young infant mammoth. That's not an elephant. That's a mammoth. But it is an elephant, and I'll explain to you why. There are hundreds of thousands of mammoths buried in ice. You heard that before? That have been discovered up at the edge of the polar ice cap. Now, what are mammoths? Well, I went to Encyclopedia Britannica, and they define mammoths, and that's not religious at all. It's completely secular. They are an extinct group of elephants. So when you see a mammoth, it really is an elephant, right? So mammoths or elephants, what do we know about them from elephants today? Well, they are plant-eating animals, right? They're not carnivorous. And the question is, what are they doing up at the polar ice caps, right? Why are they there? Because we all know elephants are what? There's none in Washington. Where are they? Tropical, warm, India, Africa, yeah, all those areas. They are primarily live in Africa and in India. Well, during the time of the first Earth, what we believe, remember that picture of Pangaea, the big one, big continent? Okay, what surrounded, we believe, the planet? A water canopy, which made like a little greenhouse environment for the entire planet. So during the time of the first Earth, the world was basically a tropical environment. A plant surrounded by a water canopy that created a greenhouse-like atmosphere. These mammoths, or extinct elephants, obviously were caught by a flood, drowned, and then frozen by the ice age that followed. That's catastrophism. Or are we to believe uniformitarianism? That slowly, over time, and they're going to throw thousands, hundreds, thousands, to millions of years, okay? These hundreds of thousands of mammoths, they adapted from a tropical environment to a what? An Arctic environment. They multiplied and grew in an Arctic environment and eventually were frozen in the ice age in one geographical area. 
My question to you is this. Which theory strains credibility and requires more faith? Catastrophism or uniformitarianism? Okay, which is more likely to have happened? But again, we can always say it's possible. Just give us time. More time. More time. Let's go to something recent, though. Back in 1987, in Los Angeles, they began excavations, excavations for a subway. Um, and it recently concluded. And what they found when they began excavating, they unveiled fossils of fish, horse, horses, mastodons, mammoths, bisons, sloths, sea lions, saber-toothed tigers, and etc. And they were what they call, and you can actually go there today, these La Brea tar pits. You remember that? That's what they ran into. They've yielded tens of thousands of, of specimens of all kinds of living and extinct animals. Now here's the thing. What is there? Fish, which is what? Water. Okay. A horse. Horses. Saber-toothed tigers. Sea lions. Mammoths are there. Okay, you get the picture. There's all different kinds. How are they all there in this one location? Well, if I am to believe the unbelievable uniformitarian explanation, and it's this, that all of these animals fell into this sticky graveyard one at a time, that's what, the, that's what they would have you believe. Or they were caught up in a massive catastrophic event and so you could have had an, a, 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 an elephant far away, but just happened to land there, caught in the stickiness. So I say to you again, which theory strains credibility and requires more faith? Catastrophism or uniformitarianism? Here's more evidence from using fossil records. Did you know this? Fossils of sea creatures are even found in many of the world's highest mountain tops. Did you guys know that? Anybody know that? Yeah. According, and this is National Geographic, entitled, Fossils of Ancient Marine Animals Called Ammonites Have Been Unearthed in the Highest Mountain Range in the World, the Himalayas in Nepal. Well, how does Uniformitarians explain this then? Well, this, science, this tells scientists that Millions of years ago, because there we go with time, the rocks that became the Himalayas were at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, well, I, I could see that to an extent, because time is the answer for everything for them, because given enough time, anything's possible. And what they end up doing is they've constantly increased their estimate of the age of the earth. Well, how is it possible through the lens of catastrophism? Well, when God reshaped the planet during a worldwide flood, he created mountains by pushing up the surface of the ocean floor. Now, that's not a, that's, that's, is it a theory to an extent? Yes, but it's also backed by a historical document, the Bible, because that's exactly what Psalm 104.8 says, exactly what Genesis 7 says. So this is more than now, this is not just some false evidence. We have false evidence combined with an historically reliable book. Okay? On the floor of the ocean were what? Sea creatures. 
and they were pushed up in this cataclysmic event, and they're now at the top of these mountains. And the mountains are just covered with all these sea creatures. I don't know if you knew that or not. Here's another prime example of uniformitarianism. This is from a New York Times article. It's called, uh, it's by Malcolm Brown. It was on March 12th of 1987. He says, scientists have found fossils of whales and other marine animals in mountain sediments in the Andes, indicating that the South American mountain chain rose very rapidly from the sea. Does that sound familiar? The rare assemblage of fossils recovered on an expedition by the American Museum of Natural History to a remote plateau in southern Chile is expected not only to illuminate an obscure epic of animal evolution, but also to document the rise of the Andes Mountains in the past, and watch this, 15 million years. This stuff had to happen slowly to keep the bodies preserved there, right? Among the fossils scientists reported bring, bringing back were the bones of whales and other marine animals found at altitudes of more than 5,000 feet. When these animals died 15 million to 20 million years ago, so I say to you, were you there when that happened 15 million to 20 million years ago, when the humans didn't even exist? So how do you know that? Because when they say this, what are they saying it as? Fact, when it is nothing but a theory. A theory based on what? That's where you have to get down to the root of it all, and it goes back to Charles Lyell, principles of geology, and you know his background, and so on and so forth. But by this time, that where you and I are in history, catastrophism, no, it's not even considered anymore. It certainly isn't taught, it's not even considered. He says, but since then, the violent upthrusting of the Andes chain has carried the sediments to the tops of mountains. In geological terms, the time the fossils took to rise from the ocean floor to mountaintop was relatively brief. So now to them, 15 to 20 million years is relatively brief because they've dated the planet now to almost a billion years old. <laughs> so you just keep increasing time. So again, which theory strains credibility and requires more faith, catastrophism or uniformitarianism? Well, how about this? These are everywhere, folks. You know what those are? Fossil footprints. This is from a cliff collapse, watch this, reveals a 313 million year old fossil footprint in the Grand Canyon National Park. This was August of 2020 by Joel Baird. This was actually discovered in 2016, so an article was written. So now we're not, how old is the earth now? Well, it's beyond 313 million years old. Well, Uniformitarianism is gonna say this, this is directly quoting from this article, the presence of a detailed geological map of the strata during the Bright Angel Trail, that's in the Grand Canyon, together with previous studies of the age of the Manicacha Formation, the Grand Canyon, allowed the researchers to pin down the age of the tracks that we're seeing right here, quite precisely to 313 plus or minus 0.5 million years. It has to be that old based upon their study, okay? Now, catastrophism, says this, this sort of discovery right here is so frequently found it is considered normal. They're everywhere. Now what stands out is how perfectly these tracks have been preserved. Those are really well preserved forever how old they are. Now it's strange credibility to think that those are actually 313 million years old, but let's say they're 
4,000 years old. Those are nice-looking tracks, right? They've been preserved real nicely. Because it is a matter of common experience, and we have a great example even today, that impressions in this sort of soft mud or sand are very quickly obliterated. It's wet out there. If you go and you walk in our grass and it's wet and you put your foot down, you're going to leave an imprint, right? How long will that imprint last? 313 plus million years? Because that obviously was exposed to what? It was open. Someone stepped on it. It wasn't covered like it was when it you know. So why is it still there? Why would it have not it just eventually disappeared? It seems clear, they write, that the only way such prints could be preserved as fossils is by means of some chemical reaction quickly hardening the tracks. In other words, if you were to walk out there and step on, the, on, on, a, on just a, if it was muddy out there and step on that mud, by the end of the week, your footprint is probably going to be gone, right? But if you walked out, you stepped into wet cement, what's going to happen? Because of a chemical reaction, it's going to harden quickly, it will still be there. So they say that there has been some sort of chemical reaction that quickly hardened these tracks, and some water then and sediment that rapidly buried it and preserved it. Does that make sense? So some sudden and catastrophic action is again necessary for any reasonable explanation for these fossil footprints. But what these people are doing is exactly what Peter prophesied. They're claiming uniformitarianism that all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now watch this. Listen to this. What happens when someone is stupid enough, and I use the word stupid sarcastically, to claim that fossils found in mountain peaks is, essence, is evidence of a great flood? Because that exactly happened. They're explained away using the only available method of reasoning, atheistic naturalism. There's an article by Katie Fowler on November 16th of 2021 that was entitled, Man Finds Sea Fossil 8,300 Feet Up a Mountain, and people think it's proof of a great flood. That is the article, the title of the article. Okay? Here we go. A TikTok user's video of a man finding a sea fossil on top of a mountain has gone viral, and many people have rushed to claim it as proof of the great flood. But paleontologists have different ideas. With three million views, and they can't have three million views being exposed to catastrophism, right? Many drew comparisons to it looking like an alien, while others suggested it was evidence of the great flood, as in the Bible. Newsweek asked paleontologists, now these paleontologists have been exposed to one theory, and what is it? Uniformitarianism. Mm -hmm. And they all agreed that the fossil was clearly a crinoid, which belonged to a group of sea creatures called echinoderms related to starfish, sea urchins, and sand dollars. It was in likely from the Paleozoic era, now watch this, making it between 250 and 500 million years old. Add more time to it all. What the gentleman has found is actually beautiful preserved fossil crinoids, also known as the Seedily, said Natural History Museum curator Tim Ewan. 
Aside from the fossil looking like an alien, internet users also had other theories behind its existence, and especially how a sea creature could end up so high on land. Fossilized sea creatures can be found on a mountaintop. It's almost like there was a great flood, commented one user, referring to the biblical story of Noah and his ark. And said, however, there's a factual reason for this, as explained to Newsweek by paleontologists. Tectonic plates. When we find these fossils, I'm quoting, it tells us that these rocks were laid down in, in marine conditions, i.e. under the sea, they got that right. The reason they're now up a mountain is due to plate tectonics processes like mountain building. When the continents collide together, it results in large tectonics forces that uplift the land, pushing rocks upwards to create mountains. Of course, that's what God did when he recreated everything in Genesis chapter 7. Now, Dr. Katie Strong said, that was what Dr. Katie Strong said, Dr. Joe Hellowell, the executive officer of the Paleontological Association, agreed, telling Newsweek, rocks with marine fossils in are found in many mountain ranges due to the movements of the earth. Tectonic plate movements push up mountains ranges and can uplift rocks that were once deep within the crust. Many fossils then become exposed due to a weathering processes. Noah's Ark might be one of the most recognizable stories from the Bible, but according to experts, this TikTok find isn't exactly proof of it. It is not possible for there to have been a worldwide flood and a reshaping of the planet as the Bible claims. It's uniformitarianism. So to sum up the fossil record, the preservation of organic materials such as fossils, by whatever means, requires a catastrophic condition. With rapid burial by engulfing sediment, followed by some abnormal chemical reaction that quickly solidifies the fossil. The principle of uniformity, uniformitarianism and of uniformity, it's just inadequate to explain the evidence. Now, as we wind up here, it's not just fossil records. There are other ancient flood accounts. Are you aware of that? Yep. Um, John MacArthur, as a student in seminary, researched this. I'm going to just read directly from him. Uh, he was studying seminary, and he says this, In my study of religions and cultures that I first embarked upon in seminary days, and you're going to find this fascinating, folks. I was exposed to some of the ancient flood stories that literally exist in all the populated parts of the world. There are over 270 different nations, races, and tribes that have in their tradition a flood story. A sampling, the Babylonians have one, it's called the Gilgamesh Epic. He says, but let me give you a random selection of various peoples that have a flood story. The Samokubo tribe of New Guinea, the Athabascan Indians on America's west coast, the Papago Indians of Arizona, the Algonquin Indians of the northeast United States, the Brazilian tribes, the original people of Cuba, the Mexicans, the natives of Alaska, the Hottentots. I would want to be a Hottentot just because I like to say Hottentot. Hottentot. Doesn't that sound cool? I'm a Hottentot. This is my daughter Lydia. She's a Hottentot. <laughs> the Greenlanders, the natives of Hawaii. In fact, Nays of Hawaii, they have a flood story with a main character named Nu'u. Hear that? Nu'u. Does it sound like Noah? N-U, plus for you. The Welsh, the Lithuanians, 
and flood tradition exist in the history of India, in China, in Egypt. That's a sampling of 270 different people groups that have a flood story in their tradition. Now, obviously, these flood stories are garbled to some extent, MacArthur writes, from the original biblical account because of their cultural idiosyncrasies and their false religions. But some interesting statistics help us look at these with a certain sense of commonality. It says, of the 270 or so flood narratives, listen to this, 88% of them say that there was, in the midst of the flood, a favored family that was spared. 70% say survival was by means of a boat. 95% say the sole cause of this great catastrophe that came on the whole world was a flood. And that is to say it was a flood and nothing else. 66% of these traditions say that it came because of man's wickedness. 67% of these traditional flood stories say animals also were saved. 57% of the stories say the survivors ended up on a mountain. Many of them use the same form of Noah's name, like the Hawaiian legend Nu'u. Many of them speak about birds being sent out. Many speak about a rainbow. Many of them say that eight people were saved, one of them a Hottentot, just because I like to say Hottentot. So there's historical evidence of other documents of other people groups of a worldwide flood. Are we just to ignore that? No. Then there's this, of course, the Mount St. Helens eruption. It, it creates a dilemma for uniformitarianism. Douglas F. Kelly writes this, the uniformitarian assumption that millions of years of geological work extrapolating from present slow natural processes would be required to explain structures such as the American Grand Canyon for existence. Because the uniformitarianism says the Colorado River always existed for a long time and carved all of that. Okay? That's what they have to say. But that's called into question by the explosion of Mount St. Helens on May 18th of 1980. We saw the videos. Massive energy equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT destroyed 400 square miles of forest in six minutes. It changing the face of the mountain and digging out depths of earth and rock, leaving formations not unlike the larger Grand Canyon. What's that called up there? Isn't it Tootle Canyon? Tootle Gorge? I think is what it is. And there's sedimentary strata that was just, we know, was formed just like that. Okay? Now, it says, recent studies of the Mount St. Helens phenomena indicate that if attempts were made to date these structures, which, of course, was formed in 1980, on the basis of uniformitarianism theory, guess what? How old would that gorge or that canyon that we know was formed in 1880 be? Millions of years old would be postulated. Now, why are they doing that? Well, it's right here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. We have that within us, and God has made it evident to us. But watch this. For since the creation of the world, okay, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In other words, the fossil records. All of that strata, all of that stuff that we see, all these other accounts, all the evidence, the facts, it's all there. 
But what does the world do? They suppress the truth. They deny the facts. Because they do that, that stands as a testimony against them, and they are without excuse. They are without excuse. And so if I were to be, you know, I said that the evidence is there and is overwhelming, but man stubbornly refuses to acknowledge the facts and submit to God. He would rather go on living a lie. And so I would say then that if I was on a student panel back then with what I know now, I would argue with them just how I argued with you. I wouldn't say it's just by faith. Yes, it's that, but what evidence is there? And there is evidence that what we read in the Bible, it's not just myth or legend. Did you know that the Bible is the most, by far, and it's not, it's not even brought in question by the, the best minds of archaeology, as the most reliable historical document that's ever existed? Did you know that? Historical document. In other words, the, the, what the Bible speaks of, and the dates that they give, and the wars they talk about, there are other evidences, other writings that confirm that. But the standard of what, when there are, are, for archaeology and for historical evidence, they go to the Bible. Because the evidence is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And so I thought to myself, what, what do you do with this information? I want you to know that there was a worldwide flood, that there's that massive evidence for it, and that in terms of a geological perspective, it is only catastrophism that is a reasonable explanation for it. But you probably were never exposed to it because we were exposed to uniformitarianism, which we knew would happen because Peter prophesied it. So now, what do we do? Well, I want you to do this. Just educate yourself in this stuff. You don't have to just say it's by faith. You don't have to just question whether it was real or not. It was real. And there's facts and evidence for it. Amen? All right. Since we're running a little over, we're not going to close with a song. I'm just going to pray. And we can go from there. Heavenly Father, as we close our time this morning, thank you for all this evidence you've given us. We know you are our God. And you're sovereign. And you judge sin. And as we kind of wrap up this series in the flood and, and move on into the the... the the second society, the society that we are all a part of, we look forward to what you're going to teach us. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great Sunday.